Welcome to the third episode of the Emerald Future of Work podcast series. The title is The Role of Technology in the Future of Work, and we're really lucky to be joined by four panelists. We have Gavin Brown, who's Associate Professor of Financial Technology at the University of Liverpool, and we have Dr. Richard Whittle, who is Senior Lecturer in Behavioural Economics at Manchester Metropolitan University. Uh, Gavin and Richard are co-authors of the Emerald book, Algorithms, Blockchain and Cryptocurrency, Implications for the Future of the Workplace. We are also joined by Professor Emma Parry, who is Professor of Human Resource Management at Cranfield School of Management. Uh, Emma's also the editor of the Changing Context of Managing People book series. And last but not least, we're also joined by Professor Greg Marshall. Greg is Professor of Marketing and Strategy at Rollins College, Florida and also serves as the Editor-in-Chief of the European Journal of Marketing. Thank you all for joining us. What I, what I wanted to do was really just start with a, a fairly general and, and sadly timely topic in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. What do you think, how has the, the, the pandemic caused us to change the way that we use technology at work? Emma, if we start with you. Uh, well, I think I'd like to start by saying that I'm not sure what we're seeing now is a massive change. I think what it has done is accelerate trends that were happening already. Um, so, you know, we're, so we've seen increased use over the last few years of things like technology around communication and collaboration, this move to using technology that allows us to work at home, and also the use of things like robotics for deliveries, for cleaning, for things like that. So I don't think any of the kind of things we've been talking about over the last few weeks are new, but what it has done is it's forced us to adopt these in bulk much more quickly and change the way that we work accordingly to do that. So for me, there are really around three areas. It's around communication and collaboration. Um, It's around other technologies that allow us to work at home, and it's around what I think is probably the most interesting stuff around robotics and how we're beginning to replace some of those manual tasks with robotics much more than we perhaps would have done at this point in time. So when you kind of say it's, just, it's sped up the process, if we finally get this this pandemic behind us, would you see that, that the changes has, has been fairly permanent or would you see any that are quite temporary? Well, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? That everyone is asking at the moment. To be honest with you, I think it's probably somewhere in the middle I mean, there are a lot of commentators saying at the moment that no one will ever work in an office again and we'll all stay at home. I very much doubt that that will happen. We're social creatures. We've seen in the past that moves from organisations to move to a complete remote working position have actually not been that successful. And many organisations have begun to introduce locations where people can interact because actually people want to do that face to face sometimes. So I don't think we'll see a complete move to home working. But what I do think we will see is that we will see more people working at home. We'll see employers perhaps be more willing to allow people to work at home when they want to, because I think employers have been very cautious about how they manage performance and productivity in people when they're remote working. And they've been forced to face those issues over the last few weeks. So we'll see employers be more willing to that. And one of the things I think that we probably hope because of other issues around climate change and things is that we'll see less traveling for meetings of a few hours because people have learned that perhaps they can do that in a different way and don't need to get on an airplane to do this kind of thing. So I think we'll see some changes, but not perhaps quite as drastic as some people are predicting. Gavin, if I turn to you with the same question, what are are your thoughts in this area? 
Yeah, certainly a lot a lot to think about. And especially my area tends to be focused on the, the sort of role that financial services also play in, in this uh, aspect of, of current work and future work. I'd agree with everything that was just said by Emma there in terms of almost having these two stages. We're in a, a sort of a limbo stage at the moment in a COVID-19 environment pre-vaccine. And the big question seems to be is what is that post-vaccine economic environment going to look like? I think some of the changes that we've seen in terms of the gradual fragmentation of work, um, lowering of trade unionship membership generally, globally, increase in non-employed status happening in lots of jurisdictions as well. A lot of those trends we, we may see accelerating, similar to what Emma's point was made before. And the other thing that I'm, I'm relatively interested in as well is that demarcation almost between professional positions, perhaps that are more able to move into a home working situation or even freelance operation versus what we perhaps once have called blue collar work and where there's that physical dimension to the role and, and client and customer facing often in some instances. And exactly whether this current environment and this technological shift, although it improves let's say, productivity and maybe even value for money for the end consumer generally, is it actually going to widen a gap between those two types of workers if we can discuss them as, as two discrete blocks? So certainly a, a lot to think about there. And I think the question is, what does that new normal look like post a vaccine, assuming one does come in 12 to 18 months, which a lot of people seem to be predicting? And what kind of uh, nudges or um, new norms of behaviour are actually going to stick in terms of the way we operate in terms of purchasing behaviour, etc. So just because we can reopen certain types of activities, to what extent are people going to re-engage with them in the same way that they did pre the vaccine, really? Yeah, that's actually given me a, a nice segue, your, your mention of the word behavioural, because I'm going to move to Richard, the behavioural economist. Richard, what, what's your thoughts around that? Well, I've got to say, I mean, I think that everything I've, I've heard so far, I, I, I agree with. Ultimately, I think one of the trends that's been really accelerated and as of yet unexplored, is this integration of online technologies into physical space and the behavioural effects of that. Mm -hmm. So as an example, what I'm thinking of is uh, apps for, say, payment or coordination activity in hospitality. Now, most, say, large chains or even smaller restaurants, pubs, uh, bars, etc., have had an app that you can pay with for a large amount of time. They've had apps that you can order tables with that you can, they can use to coordinate activity. However, the uptake of these has generally been pretty poor. Suddenly, well, as of tomorrow, in order to, say, book a table or go and drink in my local pub, I need to use their app in order to book a table and then I need to use it to make a payment etc. Now my issues with this are numerous or my concerns with this are numerous. My first one is these large amounts of research and studies about how we view payment or kind of spending our money via an app compared to say using cash and there's lots of indications that we will value money less that we're spending electronically. Again, that has implications for our online retail, our online spending behaviours more generally, but it can potentially lead to greater indebtedness, people not seeing the value of their money, people disassociating the value of their money from their spending activity at that time. But I think one of the really interesting things around this is that what is going to happen is suddenly your local business, your local hospitality chain, has access to a huge amount of your data. Now, there are issues around kind of personalised nudging around this. So what's the right time for Richard to get a reminder that he suddenly got a 
free drink or a discount code or something like that to help change his consumption patterns. But there are also issues around business models. First, in terms of, say, workers and skills and uh, digital skills in a variety of different industries. But one of the things that we're yet to explore is could we be looking at fundamental changes to business models, say from traditional bricks and mortar physical consumption to either data driven with, say, targeted ads, that kind of thing, real in-depth knowledge of your customers, or even the next stage, which is data gathering. Do these businesses start to exist solely to gather data to sell on, which is a very valuable commodity? And so I think that from a behavioral perspective, this integration of online purchasing processes into our physical space is something that really needs exploring much further. Interesting. Actually, uh, Greg, if we bring you in at this point, because a, a lot of what Richard said there was around the, the customer experience and how things are changing now. And sort of how would you say that these recent trends in technology are, are impacting the customer experience? I guess from your perspective, from marketing and sales particularly, what, what do you think around that? Well, I appreciate that question, and thanks for the opportunity to be here. Uh, you know, I'm based in the U.S., but I also hold an appointment at Aston University in Birmingham, and I was over there earlier this year, got back in early March, obviously have not been back to the U.K. since, but have been staying in close contact with all of my colleagues and friends over over in, in, in the U.K., and it's quite interesting to look at some of the similarities and some of the differences in how the technology piece of the experiences we're having now are impacting differentially. And there are some differences on it. One of the things that I'm positive of is that we're not going to put the genie back in the bottle. From the consumer side, people are really, really enjoying the convenience that this has brought on in terms of interacting with various providers of products and services. And probably pre-coronavirus, we saw certain generational trends in terms of how likely an individual might be to prefer doing business with us through some kind of digital or social means. Now, very early evidence, but it's very strong evidence. Uh, This is certainly busting through generations. And uh, the genie in the bottle uh, analogy, I think, is very important because Once people experience, and that is the word that is operative here, once they experience the opportunity to do business through means other than face-to-face, quite a few people find that they like it. And in fact, in so many ways, it's not just the convenience factor, but we're seeing some very early evidence uh, in both marketing and sales that people prefer it to the point where they may say, you know what, I should have done this five years ago. This is a tremendous change in how we're going to be developing our strategies for go-to-market in the future. And uh, I think that the marketing academic community generally is fairly excited about this because I think generally they've been trying to nudge consumers to jump on the bandwagon a little bit quicker for the last decade. And now all of a sudden we see this uh, sea change The downside, of course, we all understand, is the fact that there are winners and losers when there's significant changes in consumer trends. And we've already seen some very sad examples of key retailers that were not in a position to be able to succeed in an environment that may favor the virtual over the in-person. 
but mm -hmm. survival of the fittest in commerce certainly has been with us throughout uh, the ages. And it is a fascinating time really to be studying consumer behavior. Interesting. So do you think in terms of that, when you talk about those organizations, companies that haven't necessarily either adopted technology well enough or have adopted technology, but still haven't succeeded with it, what sort of examples do you have of those kind of organizations? Well, it's really the haves and have nots, honestly. It depends on how well the firms and their the combination strategically between their IT folks and capabilities there and the marketing and sales units have been able to vision the future so far. And there are some real differences in how well organizations have been able to do this. So as consumers were constrained in their ability to procure goods and services over the past several months, we're very finicky. We're all consumers. And we know that if we cannot achieve what we're looking for from A, we're going to look at B, C, and D. And mm -hmm. so to your point, what's happening is that the firms that already had platforms that were very convenient, very easy, very logical to be able to use, I tried it, I won it over. All of a sudden, I'm thinking this is pretty good. What we're expecting over the next year to 18 months is that it's going to be very difficult for the traditional brick and mortar retailers to compete in the way they were in the past because so many people have been won over by necessity, necessity being the mother invention, of course, mm -hmm. to the convenience of doing business in ways other than literally going down to the high street and walking into the store. Okay. So if I move to Gavin for this first point, a lot of it now is going to be around the surviving and the thriving of businesses post-COVID. One of your, your areas of expertise, the book you've written around blockchain and cryptocurrency, how can they be harnessed to benefit businesses? Yeah, so certainly lots to say on that. I mean, just sort of dovetailing slightly as well into what Greg was just saying there in terms of the traditional bricks and mortar type businesses. I think that one of the challenges they've got, which is now becoming even more of a focus, is the idea that given the paradigm shift we've gone through, and that we sort of don't use that word lightly, is that you know you wouldn't design the way they run some of their businesses today in the way that they've constructed them. So they've always had these legacy systems. I'm thinking, you know, about financial services and organizations such as that. And they've always struggled to justify, you know, a certain movement away from the old business model to the new. And they're almost running both in parallel, but they're now going to find themselves in a situation where they maybe have to take that jump and can no longer paddle across the river at a, at a slow pace as the demographic change if you like. I think addressing your question directly, though, of, um, you know, what, what about blockchain and cryptocurrency? One of the things I'm particularly interested in is around the, the new type of money, which is coming about not just from a cryptocurrency perspective, but more from a state level perspective. So there's a lot of talk, particularly in the US, are leading on this about um, so-called digital dollars, basically recognizing that um, as things are changing significantly at the consumer level, a lot of this relies upon you having a digital identity. It relies upon you having a bank account and the sorts of things many of us take for granted. You know, you look in the UK today and there's almost 2 million adults with no UK bank account. Now, as these business services and our consumption patterns change, those people are literally, um, there's a complete barrier to them engaging in this in a meaningful way at all. So one of the things that are being explored is the idea of individuals having a bank account with their central bank. So in the US, that would be with the Fed. If it, here in the UK, that would be with the Bank of England. And so when we see a potential second wave or future crises or similar sort of big events happening, and say in the US example, everyone gets a $1,200 check if you're earning less than $75,000 a year, that money is instantly into a digital bank account and not 
being burdened with a check. Maybe you've got a bank account, maybe you've not. And then obviously being forced to go out physically and bank that in a brick and mortar bank potentially as well. So so lots of innovation happening there, and particularly the US leading the way on that kind of digital dollars debate, which I find particularly interesting in terms of banking the unbanked, really. Following on from that, Richard, I mean, when we talk about blockchain and cryptocurrency, do you see any dangers with it, any drawbacks? Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things around any kind of new technology that we're talking about, as, as has been pointed out, of course, are there going to be winners and losers. And I think one of the big losers are traditional organizations that are using or potentially going to be using really rapidly antiquating systems, both for recording payments, for transferring money, for making payments, and actually as using money just as a means of payment. Whereas one of the things that's really come into its own in this crisis and is potentially, as has been said, genie back in the bottle kind of stuff, is using money as a coordination tool, a coordination of customers via their payment mechanisms, that kind of thing as well, or even a coordination of social activity and a mechanism of digital social activity. And I think that the losers will be around individuals and organisations that aren't involved, aren't kept up, potentially traditional organisations that have large-scale infrastructures, large-scale costs associated with training. Also, organisations that have very, very broad customer demographics, Mm -hmm. which attempt to suit their entirety of their customer base rather than focusing, uh, and again, I'm not saying this is necessarily a bad thing, but rather than focusing on a particular customer base where the technology that is synonymous with that customer base enables them to have a different experience, a different consumption experience and different economic experience. Okay. A lot of what Gavin and Richard talked about, when you talk about legacy systems or antiquated systems, Emma, if I move to you in an HR context, how do you see the change of technology, the pros, the cons of using technology in, in an HR capacity? Well, again, I guess one of the things I'd like to say is that this trend of technology driving changes in the world of work is not really anything new. For a long time, we've seen this trend of technology both augmenting and replacing people in order to make processes more efficient and effective. We've seen technology facilitating communication and collaboration. And we've seen perhaps where the emphasis has been more recently around the ability to store, analyze and apply massive quantities of data in order to improve the speed and effectiveness of decision making. Mm -hmm. So through time, as we've seen that evolution of technology, it's always changed the world of work. If you look at manufacturing 40 years ago, maybe more, and the introduction of robotics and automation had a dramatic effect. And that's why we now talk about the fourth industrial revolution, I guess, because we've seen this several times before. So some of the effects to a broad extent are the same, I think. So we see these continued trends around automation um, and augmentation of different roles. But what we have seen as technology has advanced is that we're no longer really talking about the more junior roles, the very administrative roles or the very transactional roles. And nowadays, when we talk more about artificial intelligence or more about kind of algorithmic applications of data, we talk much more about technology affecting roles in the middle of the organisation. So those roles that require higher cognitive function or complex decision making 
So perhaps in businesses such as things like law, finance, and I'm sure Gavin could probably say a lot more about this than me, you know, and also in medicine. So we're beginning to see, I think, technology have a much wider effect And of course, the rhetoric, and again, if I can talk about these anonymous commentators that I mentioned when I spoke before, uh, you know, the rhetoric is technology is going to replace all our jobs. Everybody's job will be automated. Actually, I don't believe that. I think, yes, we will see some jobs being automated. Of course, that's going to happen. But we're also seeing new jobs being created. I think some data recently suggested that actually there'll be more job creation than jobs lost as a result of artificial intelligence, which is positive news. And we see massive changes in the kind of skills that people need, not just in terms of technology, but I guess a move away from the more transactional or perhaps decision making to things that require more creativity, more innovation and more ability to deal with complexity, perhaps the things that at the moment technology isn't very good to deal with. And then, of course, more emphasis on the interpersonal skills and the things that, again, technology isn't very good at at the moment. So I think we still see these trends of augmentation and automation, but we also see this real shift of skills and what's important within organisations. Okay, Greg, you had a point to make on this. Yes, I really appreciate Emma's comments on this. And, you know, I'm a lifelong marketer. And so looking at it through that lens, one of the things that's been driving us crazy for a period of time now in this field is that I think everybody conceptually understands the importance of reconceiving the entire process of, of, quote, marketing and sales around customer experience. And so recasting the process as a customer journey and a customer experience management exercise. Now, you know, I've got a chapter in one of my books on this, and it's easy to write and talk about, but getting it done is really tough. And so I think what Emma has shared with us here, many of these things are going to be the catalyst that forces the hand on this issue, because the complexities of customer needs and wants in 2020 and beyond, and this is not COVID-driven, this is market-driven and just simply sophistication of consumer knowledge-driven, necessitate the fact that we become a lot better at thinking holistically and then acting on more of a a one-to-one basis with our customer about what their needs and wants are. So back to back to another point she made about the sort of the winners and losers part, that's absolutely bound to be true. As people are developing their marketing strategies for next year and the next year and the next year, I'm hopeful with fingers crossed that more organizations and the marketing leadership are stepping back and thinking about the capabilities that they would be able to achieve through a better use of artificial intelligence through the use of really understanding the the blockchain cryptocurrency capabilities, how that impacts their ability to really map out a customer experience and allow that experience to be more seamless. These are not topics that I've seen talked about in uh, boardrooms recently to the level we're going to be seeing from this point forward. Emma, can bring you back in there? Yes, I'm always really interested when I listen to marketing people talk about the evolution of marketing and customer experience, because actually we're seeing exactly the same in human resource management, because, of course, the emphasis in human resource management and the path that we've been going along is one of employee experience and employee being the customer. And some of these trends that Greg was just talking about, about how we can use technologies and artificial intelligence 
to support HR professionals in that case on this journey is exactly the same in relation to managing people. But also, I think we're seeing technology in a similar way to in marketing, enable the empowerment of employees to make their own decisions and to control their own working life and their own jobs a bit more. And I think we see similar things in marketing in terms of customers being able to empower themselves through data and technology to make decisions. We're seeing similar things in HR. So it always really interests me how aligned those two areas are. Okay. Gavin, you have a point on that? Yeah, it was just to expand a little bit on what Emma was saying there in terms of data-led decision-making. And obviously, particularly in, in my area, which is typically financial services in terms of the future of work and the operators there as well, seem very much a drive now towards what's typically referred to as hyper-personalization. So this idea that your financial identity, your financial transactions are almost not only bespoke and personal to you, but they're interwoven with your often social identity as well, particularly in terms of digital social identity. Um, and that, that's all starting to change quite a lot. And especially when you consider some of the regulations coming through at European level, it's what's known as PSD2, which allows your bank or, or yourself to build platforms and to knit together your entire financial identity from all of the different products you have together. And, uh, you know, I find that particularly interesting, not only to empower from the customer experience, but also what does that mean for people who don't have access to that? And I mentioned before the banked and unbanked. But I think the other thing to recognize as well is that although that general trend towards corporations and use of data to improve customer experience. At the same time, that reliance on artificial intelligence and you know algorithmic insight can also be a danger as well. And I've just been reading some recent work talking about almost a COVID blindness, this idea that the ability to predict bad debt, uh, default risk on uh, loans, et cetera, is almost not, not necessarily non-existent, but is becoming very difficult simply because in this new pandemic environment, because the whole system, the whole game has changed completely, it's even difficult to d- understand when someone is defaulting and when they're not, maybe a consumer loan or an employee loan or whatever it might be. So the ability to rely on that technology in normal times is obviously a given, but in this kind of atypical state we find ourselves in, that black swan that is COVID-19 has rendered those systems to be not necessarily found wanting, but certainly in need of professional and academic scrutiny. Okay, Richard, is that is that something that, 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 that you would agree with as well? Absolutely. I think from a kind of behavioural perspective, we've got this huge unforeseen event which has created uh, fear, which has created a, a kind of big shock and change to our lives. I mean, there's no uh, getting away from the fact that this is a very... Uh, fertile ground for, say, conspiracy theories or for uh, nationalism or things along those lines, which can develop to this big societal uncertainty. And I think from the perspective of the consumer and consumption and economic activity, we are seeing the shift to online. And suddenly we're also seeing with that the not consideration or actually in quite a lot of cases, no real choice, but to give over our data, but to uh, sacrifice some of our privacy for, for for convenience, but also for for the basics and essentials that we need. And one of the things that, of course, happens, and, and we all know from our daily lives, is that it is much easier to spend money online than it is is in person. In fact, if we look at the uh, design process built into the vast majority of websites we all use, which either nudge people into to sale so other customers bought this that kind of thing as well or remove something that we call a sludge which is a barrier to a decision 
So one of the things that we will often find is that websites we use store our card details. Why do we do that? It's for convenience, of course, but one of the key dropout points in any purchase is when you have a second to consider it. So a second to go and find your card to put in your card details. If we eliminate that point of consideration of a purchase, then we make the purchase itself more likely. Now, as we have this societal shift towards greater online economic activity and a shift that's come around very, very rapidly, often with no or little choice, and again, there are advantages around convenience, of course, but often with no or little choice, then people aren't necessarily equipped, and some of the demographics we were talking about earlier, aren't necessarily equipped for these, these changes to occur. Okay, interesting. Greg, if I turn to you, because I think a, a lot of the discussion has a lot of resonance towards one particular sector that I know you've worked in a lot in terms of the gig economy. So I was wondering, what do you think the impact of technology? Is it going to further cement the gig economy? Is it going to expand it in terms of the way of working? What are your thoughts around that? Uh, it's a very interesting area. The gig economy, also referred to as the sharing economy, there's a variety of other similar names. The basic concept of it is a very strong concept. It certainly has caught on in the U.S., Europe, many places around the world. The idea that I can build together for myself a set of income-generating possibilities that may help me not necessarily connect over the long run to some kind of single job or career track. And it is a trend that is significant the further down the age groups that you go. But the question about the impact of the current crisis and the technology that we're beginning to embrace based upon necessity now is something that we're thinking a lot about in terms of the gig piece. I'm part of a project that's called The Ultimate Gig that is going to result in a book that's published by Emerald and we've got some really uh, amazing folks that are part of this, uh, looking at every possible aspect of gig. The couple of things that I'd share, probably top of mind right now. Uh, number one, we project, as do a number of other sources that we've looked into that are importantly spending time trying to understand these types of shifts in workplace preferences. Our projection is that more and more, not just millennials and Gen Z, but other generations post-coronavirus are going to be able to turn to gigs successfully to be able to either A, augment their income because either they've been downsized in their jobs or actually replace income. How disruptive this will be over the long run, I think is a fascinating question, but at least in the short run, Companies like Uber, direct selling firms, operations that allow one to do uh, short-term rentals of homes, any possible type of quick, easy, separate income source that does not involve a traditional corporate environment where, you know, I'm going to get a pension, which is essentially non-existent in the U.S., but in no way do I have any type of guarantees of retirement. Uh, all of that is really forced change already pre-coronavirus. And so I'm fascinated with this topic as are the colleagues that I'm working with this on because I wish we could really predict the trajectory of it. 
there is a lot of opportunity in the gig space and the ability to think outside the box about what careers are going to look at in the future. I take more control of my destiny if I'm able to be a part-time freelancer for an ad agency, do some additional work with a selling firm that's a direct seller that's pure commission. And then at the same time, maybe I've got a Airbnb that I've used for an income source. The more we see this trend manifest, the bigger impact it's going to have on traditional company environments. And Obviously, uh, I'd love to get Emma's thoughts on this because as an HR professional and an HR expert, we've been getting some pretty interesting feedback from some of the folks in that field that we know about this. And so far, most people are saying, you know, and we're seeing the same thing, that employees also are interested in more independence, more freedom, even within the actual corporate environment. Over to you, Emma. Thank you, Greg. I was listening fascinated there because it is an area that's completely fascinating, actually. And one of the reasons I think it's so interesting is because we do have this real tension in an HR sense in relation to the gig economy. So on the one hand, we do know there's this trend towards people, as you said, wanting more freedom in the way that they work, um, not wanting to be tied to an employer, perhaps. But on the other hand, if we look at quite a lot of the attitude surveys out there, Things like job security still rank has been really important in relation to people's work values. So for me, those two things are directly in opposition. So I think that's really interesting in the UK in particular. We've had a lot of debates in recent years about, you know, are people that work for Uber, if you take Uber, because it's the one that a lot of people talk about, are they employees? Are they not employees? I mean, in the UK, legally, people have said they are employees. So I think there's a really kind of interesting tension there as well. Interestingly, some colleagues of mine in Ireland have been doing some work and some of their research is showing that that gig workers actually do identify with Uber or Deliveroo or examples of gig platforms to some extent in a similar way that they would to an employer. So they kind of identify with that organisation. They choose which one they want to work with in some cases, which is quite interesting, I think, to some degree. But the other thing, I think, going back to COVID-19 just for a second is that I do think COVID-19 has highlighted some of the problems with this lack of security and this lack of infrastructure around gig workers and the lack of protection that they have. Because we know that obviously people that work, that don't have the employer protection or employee protection that work in the gig economy have actually come out of some of the have-nots, as someone was saying earlier, in this latest crisis or this latest downturn. So I think there's a real tension and a lot of work to be done. So I'm really pleased to hear about your book and your ultimate geek project, because I think there's really a lot of work to be done to understand how, from an HR perspective, if HR even exists in a gig situation, how we manage actually the needs and protection of these workers against the freedom that some of these people desire and whether that should be done on a national policy basis rather than an organisational basis. So I do think there's some really interesting things coming there. And if I can just say one more thing, I heard something very interesting yesterday in relation to the impact of COVID, just to counterbalance something else that you said, Greg, was that actually there's an argument that technology and especially the acceleration out of COVID may actually remove some of the gig opportunities because technology is now more commonly being used to do some of the things that gig workers would have previously done. And using robotics for, for deliveries is the obvious example of that. Greg, back to you. 
Well, that is a fascinating item there, that last point that you made, Emma, and I had not thought about that. That is definitely something worth considering because COVID interjects something in there that maybe is not part of the current received view of the trajectory of the gig economy. The only other thing I was going to mention is, of course, Gen Z, which is the after millennials group, is the apple of the marketer's eye now. They've finally gotten to the point where they're moving out of childhood and are in school, and some of them are even moving into a position where they're getting into career tracks. And some of the preliminary research that I've seen on the Gen Z mindset, obviously technology and digital natives, no question about that. They want it, they love it. If there's not a technological aspect to what they're doing, I think they almost feel naked. But the key seems to be, though, more attitudinally, they seem to be potentially a little more risk averse, maybe even a bit more conservative. They went through some things when they were very young in what we call loosely the Great Recession. Uh, many people forget about the fact that they were little kids then. Many of them saw their houses being taken back by the banks. And all of this sort of thing is very formative, of course, in generational marketing. You are what you were when in many ways. And so one of the things that's fascinating to me about the gig piece is that will the next generation, not the millennials, the millennials love gigs, they're gig crazy, but will Gen Z, to Emma's point, be much more likely to say, no, not for me. I've seen what happens. I've seen the turbulence that occurs if I don't have steady income and some security, which could really boomerang again against the ability for the gig firms to be successful because they are completely driven by the independent contractors that are the ones that actually deliver the customer experience. Okay. Emma, back to you on that. I was really just going to reinforce exactly what Greg is saying. We know from historically looking back at generational shifts in attitudes that the economic cycle and economic downturns and upturns is something that really impacts attitudes towards work and as consumers in Greg's case. So that we know that when people are in a buoyant economy, people that grow up in a buoyant economy put much more emphasis on things like freedom, you know, freedom, choice, autonomy. But when people that grow up and experience as they're growing up a recession are much more likely actually to value job security and worry about some of those things for obvious reasons, really. So I think it's quite interesting to see what this generation is going to be like moving forward. And actually, I would say to Greg, I mean, he's talking about Generation Z, but I would say, actually, is this Generation Z or actually will we have a new generation now? Because is COVID actually the the shock? to the system, if you like, or the societal shock that actually could lead to a fault line between generations that we now see a different group and a different set of attitudes in the post-generation, the C generation, perhaps, coming out in the future. Okay. So a lot of that mentions kind of the behaviour, behavioural economics. Gavin, what are your thoughts around that? I'm not a behavioural economist, but I can certainly talk a bit about the way that the evolution of money and the future of money is obviously 
impacting and enabling some of those changes which uh, Greg and Emma ably spoke about there. So speaking about things like the gig economy and the various sort of platform businesses, et cetera, that connecting consumers and producers. One of the really things that I found interesting is this idea of this Internet of Things economy that's gradually creeping in and seeing that a lot of that is being enabled by the ability for real-time microtransactions to occur. So a lot of that's being driven by underlying blockchain efficiencies. A lot of it's forcing down individual transaction fees, and that's enabling people to actually broker, pay, consume, and settle for services which are much shorter in duration and much shorter in terms of monetary value as well. So we're seeing the fragmentation of the worker role which then, you know, as was mentioned before about job security, the idea of a job for life went a long time ago. And I think very soon with the idea of someone only having one job at any given time will also be considered quite unusual. I think other things that are impacting the, the worker identity as well, from my perspective, from a monetary role, if you like, is the idea of more and more corporates now beginning to issue and make desires that they wish to issue their own currency, so a corporate currency. It's certainly not something that's new. The East India Company did it a few centuries back and did it in a very conniving um, sort of Machiavellian way in that they, they paid their employers with a currency of their making and then they could only then spend that in shops which they controlled. And, you know, we've already seen Facebook talking about that with their Libra currency. They're, they're offering their employees uh, when it launches the ability to be remunerated um, with that currency as well. Up to 25%, I think it is, of their employment can be remunerated in a coin issued by their corporation. Now, it doesn't seem to me to be many steps removed before we might have a situation where your role is, when it's offered to you, is contingent upon you having your entire salary maybe mandated to be denominated in a currency issued by your corporation or your employer. So, um, yes, it's an enabling technology. Yes, it can enable, you know, the sort of freelancer, independent contractor or gig worker. But that same technology might be used in a different way, especially by much bigger and technology oriented companies that may be out there and wishing to leverage that. What's really interesting across the four of you is the very different areas of expertise that you bring. So when we look at the future of work and the role of technology in these things, it's looking very much towards those who are potentially earlier in their career. What would be really interesting from my point of view is um, what, what advice would you give to people either at university who don't want to go to university? But what sort of advice would you say to prepare themselves for the future of work, bearing in mind technology as much as they can? Gavin, if we start with you on that. I read a good stat the other day, uh, I think it was by the World Economic Forum, there was a specialist there saying that for our primary age school children today, around about 60% of them will go on to work in roles that don't presently exist. So I always think there is a problem of that herd mentality of trying to second guess what will be the thematic changes in the world of work in terms of skills resources. Even if the theme is called correctly, if people respond to that en masse, they could end up with an oversupply of labour and you wish you didn't go into that particular role. So from my perspective, I'm very much as an academic, I'm a purist. You know, I do believe in do what you enjoy, do what you are best at, and you're likely to succeed given that enjoyment as well. And I know it sounds a bit odd to say this, but, you know, almost let the chips settle where they may, and hopefully you'll be in the right position for you. But even if that poses employment challenges, as long as you just maintain an overall mantra of obviously doing what you love, studying what you love, but also recognizing that the aim of the game now is one of flexibility, okay? Most people are gonna need to change careers, change professions, maybe multiple times in their careers. So being adaptable, being flexible for the future is probably my biggest piece of advice if I was giving it really, I think. Okay, Richard, do we have you? Yes, I'd very much echo uh, what Gav's just said. I think that the siloization of training really, really is a, problematic for somebody looking to the future where 
the range of activity is going to be vast and kind of the need for adaptability. I think that one of the things that we see quite a lot in the press, particularly in the UK, is a criticism of particularly kind of creative type training, creative type activities and non-STEM subjects as well. But as we've already discussed earlier in this podcast, the creation of work and the displacement of some roles and the creation of others through AI may well require far more creativity and non-STEM aptitudes of the workforce in the future. Okay, Emma, from an HR perspective, what do you think around that? I'm going to reinforce, actually, what Kevin and Richard have said, really. I mean, I think from an HR perspective, what we're really beginning to see is a move away from recruiting fixed skill sets and much more towards recruiting people based on softer skills or things that are attitudes and so on. So really, I think what Richard was just saying about siloed skill sets, I think it's really important that people that are entering education or the job market now focus on the softer stuff. They think more about agility and flexibility and adaptability. They think about this thing that we might call a learning mindset, because I think careers in the future are going to be much more about needing to learn rather than having a fixed skill set and developing that in a very linear way it is going to be much more about having to adapt and develop and learn so people that I know that are recruiting right now are really looking for this thing they call a learning mindset and adaptability and some of that softer stuff so I think about those things rather than worrying about having a really fixed vocational path if you like and the other thing that I would say which I think is quite interesting that came up in a conversation I had this morning actually is that we're really beginning to see this shift in the status of jobs. So don't think about, you know, don't think about jobs that are really high status at the moment, because actually we've really seen in the last three months jobs that focus more on caring professions and so on. Actually, they've become the jobs that are desirable and more high status that people are appreciating. So don't focus too much on thinking, oh, well, that, you know, that's a good job or that's an important job, because actually I think that shifts and we're seeing a shift in that now. And think about what you enjoy, as Gavin said, do what you enjoy and you're passionate about, but don't tie yourself down too much. Greg, does that ring true with you? I agree with that. Absolutely. Andy, as you know, I've been in marketing and sales my entire career, Mm -hmm. over 10 years in industry and then transitioned into the academic side. I've been saying for a few years now that this is the best time ever for somebody to be considering a career specifically in marketing, but that they have to understand that marketing isn't the stereotypical role. It's not what a lot of people would say in a 30-second soundbite about what they think marketing is, because marketing is not really the tool that can get people to do things and buy things that they otherwise wouldn't do or buy doesn't work that way so much as it used to because there's so much information on the customer side. That's true both in business to business and business to consumer marketing. The exciting thing about the field of marketing right now is that uh, it's a word that almost has lost its original meaning to the point where even major corporations are beginning to not ban the M word, but we've seen a lot of firms change the title of the chief marketing officer, CMO, to all sorts of other things, such as chief customer officer, chief customer experience officer, etc. You can call it anything you want, but the issue is that organizations are investing a ton of money right now 
in making sure that they've got a direct line to understanding the customer needs and wants from more of a journey perspective. And we want to keep customers. We don't want to churn customers. And most importantly, we want to make sure that customers see us as a robust provider that they want to really have a relationship with over the long run. So I think kind of back to that question earlier about customer experience, Mm -hmm. as long as we rewrite the book on marketing's role and think about it much more in terms of customer experience management, and we utilize the technologies we've been talking about today in ways that augment the capability to do that, the future in marketing for anyone who goes into that field is going to be very bright. I think it's a, a really nice position to bring it to an end because I think each of you have spoken about do what you love and be flexible. So I think that's a really nice takeaway from the podcast. So I think we'll end it there and say thank you very much to all four of you. It's been really interesting and really insightful. So thank you very much to all the listeners. Thank you for listening to all three of the, the episodes um, and we'll speak to you all soon. Thank you. Thank you.